0: In the public health fight against COVID-19, social distancing and
1: self-quarantine can help slow the spread of infection. But what if you can't afford to stay home from work? People without resources often really want to work. They need to go to work because they need that paycheck and they won't get paid if they don't. So they're totally disincentivized to um, to do the things that they would need to do for these social distancing measures to work. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second
0: Thought, how inequity affects responses to what is now a global pandemic. Plus, Richard Hassan's work on election fairness has drawn critics from the right and the left. He's much more concerned about what happens if
2: voters don't trust the process. The fact that we're having this discussion now just shows you how far we've fallen. There is a legitimate concern about potential violence if the election is close.
0: Avoiding an election meltdown. All coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Fear of coronavirus outbreaks has led to canceled business trips, music festivals, school closures, consumer panic for toilet paper, aspirin, and hand sanitizer, and mayhem in stock markets across the world.
2: The World Health Organization says it is deeply concerned about how quickly it's spreading. Trading came to an abrupt halt this morning on Wall Street for the second time this week, the Dow tumbling nearly 8 percent at the open after President Trump announced a 30-day ban on most travel from the European Union.
0: Governor Brian Kemp has just confirmed the first death in Georgia from the coronavirus. The spiraling fears and slow access to tests for the virus in the U.S. have exposed weak points in government systems and in the social fabric, especially for the most vulnerable. We are looking at how those inequities are playing into the risks with Dr. Karen Landman. She's an epidemiologist and a journalist who covers topics in medicine and public health. She also served as a disease detective at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, and she's here in the studio with us. Karen, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Virginia.
0: Also with us, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's chair of the Department of Global Health and professor of epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, where he is also professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Carlos, thanks for being with us.
3: Happy to be with you.
0: Well, Carlos, I'm going to start with you. Let's look at how this is playing out locally. Fulton County School District shut down on Monday afternoon through Tuesday because an employee had a confirmed case of COVID-19. Georgia Representative Doug Collins is self-quarantined. Clearly, people are scared. Is this a res- appropriate response for the risk?
3: You know, we're all, we're all a little anxious. We're all a little concerned because we really don't know where this is going. I, I tell people this is a little bit like, you know, there's a hurricane coming, and we don't know if it's going to be a Category 4 or a tropical storm. What we need to think about is as a state, as a federal government, as a local uh, government – we need to prepare for the worst and hope for the best.
0: Well, there's a lot of in- misinformation, of course, that Corona beer sales down 40 percent because people think that they can get the coronavirus. So- and
3: this is because we are we're in the first epidemic of social media era. I'm not going to fight the misinformation, but we have to overwhelm it with appropriate information because we need appropriate information to be out there. But the parallel epidemic that is happening because of social media is actually making getting information out there harder than it's ever been. And this is a new thing in this epidemic.
0: New York and Washington State have seen far more cases than Georgia so far. But the more we test, the more likely those numbers will rise. Carlos, what can we do right now?
3: Because I do think there's been a lot of community transmission. As we test more, people are going to find more cases. And that doesn't mean that these cases are happening right now. We may be picking cases that happened several weeks ago. And I tell people testing right now is going to be like looking at of the light coming from the sun or a star, it didn't come right now. You know, it, took, it traveled there. So what we need to do right now is, is three things. The critical things that need to happen are four. Number one, identify infected individuals, isolate infected individuals, aggressive contact tracing so we can then diagnose the contacts and, and isolate them as well or, or do quarantine of those who have been exposed. And the, f- the final thing we have to do is prepare a health system. And if we do those things, then what we will achieve is what we call mitigation. We will still have cases, but we're going to spread them out over time, and therefore there's not going to be panic. And, and that is critical right now. We need to move into this mitigation phase.
0: Karen, you looked into self-quarantining, which is what we're advised to do if there's any possible exposure. And your research showed a big gap in the ability of people to work from home. This is a data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Among the highest earning quarter of incomes, 90% of workers have access to sick leave. But in the lowest earning quarter, not even half have access to paid sick leave.
1: So what does that mean if quarantine is the first line of defense? That means that people are not going to stay home. Uh, they going to go to work and that means that they will uh, become infected at a higher rate than people who are able to stay home and quarantine or isolate themselves. Um, And they're also going to bring those infections back home to their families. People who are lower income generally live with more people in a household. They have fewer bathrooms per household. They share more space. So disease is going to spread more easily in that kind of environment and then go back into the workplace with all the other people who live in that household. So it's a recipe for um, more spread among people with lower incomes and less access to sick leave.
0: How about in Georgia particularly or Atlanta?
1: So in Atlanta, 18.5% 18.5% of metro Atlantans don't have um, health insurance. 22.4% of Atlantans um, live in poverty. So that means a couple of things. Number one, um, these people are not going to be able to stock up and uh, prepare to stay home as easily as uh, somebody who gets uh, who has just a higher uh, amount of money in the bank, who has a better financial cushion and can prepare. Number two, those people are not going to go get health care as quickly if they do get sick uh, and may not get the right advice that they need to stay home if they are ill. People without resources um, often really want to work. They want to go to work. They need to go to work because they need that paycheck and they won't get paid if they don't. So um, they're not they're totally disincentivized to um, to do the things that they would need to do for these uh, social distancing measures to work. Health
0: insurers have pledged at the White House this week to cover the cost of coronavirus testing. Do we know what that means for people who are uninsured or underinsured?
3: So Medicare and Medicaid have done the same they have directions from CMS to do the same and as you know Medicaid is a state program CMS CMS Center for Medicare and Medicaid All right, just uh, sure. has at the federal level has said that they are going to do that and Medicaid is a state program you know the insurance commissioner has said well, this is going to be covered and i suspect we're going to have testing here in Georgia
0: well how about the availability of tests are they prioritized for older populations those with preexisting risk factors uh, how about that lead to complications
3: uh, testing is important but testing is important to identify the sick and those that are infected, I think we need to not create panic and not everybody say, oh, you know, I was at a, an event and somebody coughed and I need to be tested. I think we need to really use testing appropriately. And that and has to be through somebody who actually says this person needs to be tested and not everybody needs to be tested. So we need to think about how we use testing. And I'll be honest with you. You know, the president said, I don't need to be tested. I don't have any symptoms. I went to CPAC conference and somebody was infected there who shook somebody else's hand. And then I shook that person's hand. I, that's a second contact. I don't need to be tested. White, White House physician said that. I agree because, quite frankly, his possibility of disease is low. And if you do a test in somebody with a low possibility of disease, the possibility of false positive increases, we call that pre-test probability, post-test probability. His pre-test probability is incredibly low. So people don't need to be running out to get tested.
0: So you're urging calm in that degree. Absolutely. But but what I'm also thinking about is not beyond the testing, there is the care. Now, some people who get sick, they don't go to their doctor for fear of the bill. So say someone tests positive and needs hospitalization, but they are not insured. What can be done to better support those vulnerable populations during an epidemic like this, Karen?
1: Well. You know, I think what we'd like to see is more people insured. And, you know, there are all these sort of bogeymen in increasing insurance access to people that I don't even want to say because they tend to make people think politically about uh, the issue of expanding health care to, um, to more people and especially the people who are most vulnerable. But the reality is that greater access to health care coverage, um, whatever name you want to slap on it, would really um, help us mitigate a lot of these problems.
3: I would totally agree. I, I would totally agree. I think that in an epidemic, we would be in a different point if we had access to health care because we, as a society, we, we tend to be a society that thinks about individualistic approaches. But when you have an epidemic, you've got to think about societal approaches because if, 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 a, if, if somebody's infected, like if you are infected and you don't have access to health care and we're sitting here and you cough and I get infected, I'm not protected, even though I could have be, access, have to- insurance, etc. Mm-hmm. So So it is in my best interest That you have access. In, In an epidemic, this is the way we have to think. We have to think about protecting you is protecting me.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things that really led us to talk about this for this segment, that the pandemics are not discriminating, you know, but about who has access to health care or who can take time off of work. But we are living, as you said earlier, in a gig economy. You know, if people are self-quarantining, there's going to be somebody delivering their food. There is going to be uh, somebody driving them to the hospital if they need to be driven to the hospital. So everybody is exposed. And that's one of the things I think that the Trump administration signaled its recognition, that people who can least afford to miss work need help. The details, of course, are being ironed out still, but deferring a payroll tax, a stimulus package. So, uh, Carlos, I'm wondering, having seen these kind of panics and resources go toward these panics in the past, how does it play out afterwards? Are they doing the right thing?
3: Epidemics are bad, but at the same time, change can happen as a result of an epidemic. Healthcare changed dramatically after the 1918 pandemic flu with HIV, we had the development of Ryan White and ADAP and other social programs that allowed access to, to care and treatment for people regardless of their ability to pay. Uh, epidemics have changed the ways we do things and because I think people understand, politicians understand, transmissible diseases need to be controlled. So this, is, this is costing billions of dollars. And uh, I love the quote from Dolly Parton that says, you, you have no idea how expensive it is to look this cheap. And I mean, we, we were saving money by not having access to healthcare, by not having social programs, and now we're going to pay, right? So being cheap is going to cost us a lot. And we need to remember that, that going forward, I would think that as, as a nation, we start thinking better about preparing for this kind of events. And that, not only as a nation, but I mean, we need to think globally. How do we prevent global epidemics from happening? Because investing in global health security, investing in social safety nets, and a variety of different things... Actually, is going to help us prevent epidemics. So I think it's a good time to have that discussion.
0: Karen Landman is with me, a physician, epidemiologist, and journalist covering medicine and public health. And Carlos Del Rio, he's chair of the Department of Global Health and professor of epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. But to pick up on that point, after the 1918 flu epidemic, there was a great revival or revolution in healthcare about how patients were treated. But, Karen, I'm thinking about for you, the populations that you're looking at, even if one is able to stay home, what kind of ripple effects could we see? Maybe some that may not be as obvious right now.
1: So... Uh I volunteer at a homeless shelter. I provide clinical care, and uh, it's, it's a, a monthly clinic that I attend, but it's an every-week clinic that they actually run. Um, the clinic is open seasonally during the winter time, and it's staffed uh, – actually, the entire shelter is staffed by volunteers, many of whom are older, above 60. And um, they're having to close down early this year uh, because – Volunteers are at higher risk for contracting and suffering severe illness from the disease. And a homeless shelter is uh, a perfect environment, unfortunately, for a disease like this to spread. So uh, here's a a sort of unusual situation in which uh, you have a vulnerable population suffering because uh, a sort of more privileged population is, um, is at risk for a worse outcome from this pandemic.
0: Right. Well, uh, and obviously, a lot of healthcare workers who are home so, health aides for that or that kind of thing don't necessarily have healthcare. So, coverage. so, a
3: couple of things. What we learned from the Chinese is that there is rapid spread within families of this of this disease. So, I think that's a very important component. So, if you live, as as Karen mentioned, if you live in a homeless shelter or if you live in a home that you know multiple families live in a, you know in one room or two rooms, there's going to be a spread. So, we have to get. That person that is infected, we have to get them to a place where he or she is isolated from other individuals. In order to control spread, we have to do that. Now, let's think about also the the importance that not everybody is going to need to go to the doctor. The great majority of people with this infection, 80% plus, do just fine. So we need, in a very strategic way, and this is not easy, to make sure that even that individual who's at home and who doesn't need to go to the hospital still gets isolated at home. So others in the household who are at risk don't then get infected and becomes critically ill. And, and that is not easy, straightforward, especially if you're poor and you don't have where else to go, right?
1: There's some overlap between the way we think about protecting people from this uh, the worst effects of this disease, and the way that we think of protecting people with vaccines. Uh, it's not most of us that we are worried about. It's the a small portion of us that we're worried about. And it's to protect those people that we're most worried about, the most vulnerable, either because of comorbid disease, um, you know, a history of smoking, being elderly, that we want to protect by limiting the spread of this. So even though you might have just minor cold symptoms from this, it's your your grandma or people— you know, where your mom works at the nursing home that you are really trying to protect by limiting the spread.
3: And I think one thing to think about is we can do things to decrease the risk of transmission. And social distancing is a critical component right now. It is like the best vaccine that you can have is for us to be six feet apart. If I'm high risk, if I'm, you know, over the age of 60 or 70, if I have chronic conditions, I should refrain from, you know, Going to big events. Refrain from being in big pug.
0: But, but, you know, if you don't have the money, you're probably taking MARTA or the subway in New York City.
3: Absolutely. And I think, again, if I'm taking a public transportation, I'm taking MARTA, I would still figure out a way to do two things. Number one, don't get in a super crowded place. But more importantly, it's, I think we, we're forgetting hand hygiene. Like if I'm going to grab the, the, the pole in the bus, mm-hmm. you know, I take a little wipey or take hand sanitizer or something, just wipe it before I touch it. And then I need to be careful that after, when I get off the bus, I wash my hands, but I don't put my hand there and then touch my face because that's how the transmission could potentially happen. You know, our hands are an incredible vehicle of transmission of virus like this one. And we need to emphasize that all sorts of things like that, if you're using public transportation, if you're getting on a plane, it's important to
0: do. I want to know what other—actually, I, w- I want to know from you, Karen, what other countries are doing and doing well.
1: Yeah, Japan has done some interesting things. Um, they implemented a lot of school closures, and um, they offered subsidies to help companies offset the cost of parents taking time off because their children had to be out of school. Um, and they're also offering some financial help to small businesses and healthcare providers who are having a decrease in their income or increasing the amount of work and the amount of workers that they're having to hire. Um France has promised 14 days of uh, paid sick leave to parents of kids who have to self-isolate if they have no other choice but to watch their kids. These are um, taken, by the way, I should credit a New York Times article on this subject. Other countries are thinking about a social safety net and about augmenting an already existing social safety net in ways that, um, that we could learn a lot from.
0: Any lessons there uh, just tie up with you, Carlos? You know we're talking about the panicked response, some federal response, but also the social response.
3: I think that having a social safety net makes a big difference, and it always does. I mean, it's not because we don't invest in healthcare. We invest more than, we spend in healthcare more than this anybody it, more else. More than any other nation in so, the world. But we don't invest in the safety net, right? We don't, and the best way to invest in prevention is to invest in the safety net. And I, th- I would love to see us rebalance that. But having said that, I've always been impressed by how Americans step up in difficult circumstances. And we have an incredibly giving society. And I would hope that volunteers and organizations are going to, I mean, they're going to, they're going to do stuff because quite frankly, we, we are a society that, that does have compassion at its, at its center. And I think this is a, a major event in which we all need to be rethinking what we do, how we do it. And, you know, if, if you have means help others that don't, because the reality is if, if we can all end this together and, It's going to end sooner if we all do the right thing.
0: Dr. Carlos Del Rio, he's chair of the Department of Global Health and professor of epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
3: Delighted to be with you.
0: And Karen Landman, practicing physician, epidemiologist, and a journalist who covers medicine and public health. She served as disease detective at the U.S. CDC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders canceled rallies this week due to fear of spreading coronavirus. But there is still an election going on and a primary vote coming up in Georgia. After the break, we're going to hear about some of the threats, real and perceived, to the integrity of our elections. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Richard Hassan was worried about voting long before the Iowa caucuses and before fears of coronavirus threatened to keep people away from primaries. As professor of election law at the University of California, Irvine, his concern is what undermines public trust in the fairness and accuracy of American elections – like unsubstantiated accusations of voter fraud, disinformation, and suppression tactics, along with some real nightmare scenarios, hacking, attacks on the power grid, and what happens if a candidate doesn't concede. Hassan has the distinction of being targeted for his work by both Democrats and Republicans. He stopped by before speaking about his new book, Election Meltdown, at the Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta. I asked him to explain the factors that corrode public trust that he writes about in the book.
2: What I'm looking at is can Americans have trust that their votes are going to be fairly and accurately counted and that the result at the end of the process in November is one that losers may not be happy with but they would say, well, this was a legitimate process. Uh, We'll fight again for the next time and that's always uh, how it's been in modern American history. Even in 2000 in Bush versus Gore, once the Supreme Court – gave its decision, Al Gore conceded, and people moved on.
3: Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time.
2: Uh, Now, things seem to have deteriorated. Recent polling by NPR, PBS, and Marist found that large percentages of Americans are concerned that they're, uh, about whether their votes are going to be fairly and accurately counted. People are worried about foreign interference. People are worried that the president might encourage foreign interference given everything we'd heard during the impeachment trial and all of that. And so the question is really, what is it that gives people the confidence that their votes are going to be fairly and accurately counted? And the book details four reasons why trust is declining. Number one, the fight over voter fraud and voter suppression. Georgia's kind of ground zero for that fight. And, uh, you know, what I try to show is, uh, through a look, uh, at a, at a case in Kansas called Fish versus Kobach, that when the voter fraud claim was put on trial, it actually failed miserably. And that the evidence of voter fraud that supports lots of these laws that, um, make it harder for people to register and vote. Uh, They're really not supported by any evidence of either lots of fraud or that these laws promote voter confidence. Instead, we know that they can make it harder for some people to register and vote. But I focus on the fact that these fights over voter fraud and voter suppression, they undermine people's confidence in the process. Republicans think Democrats are stealing the election through fraud. Democrats believe Republicans are enacting these so-called anti-fraud measures in order to suppress the Democratic vote. And so both sides feel less confident in the election.
0: So I want to pick up on that. Voter fraud, voter suppression, they're, they're in a somewhat symbiotic relationship. And after 2016 the claims from President Trump and others that several millions of votes were made by non-citizens, by impersonators. He created the President's Advisory Commission on Electoral Integrity. Not the first time a presidential commission has been convened to look at claims of voter fraud, but how is this one distinguished from the past, and what are the implications? for Sure. Beaufort? So,
2: in, we've had in the past, after the 2000 debacle, we had the Ford-Carter Commission, President Ford, President Carter, headed by a major Democrat, major Republican, uh, in 2000 before, we had a commission with President Carter and James Baker, the former Republican uh, Secretary of State. After the 2012 problems, uh, President Obama created a commission headed by his lawyer and Mitt Romney's lawyer. Uh, these commissions had, you know, equal numbers of Democrats, and Republicans, lots of professionals. Trump created what was informally known as the pence kobach Commission, nominally headed by Vice President Pence, but really led by uh, Chris Kobach, who was the Secretary of State of Kansas, one of these people, uh, really the only person I know among election professionals who backed up Trump's unsupported claims that millions of fraudulent votes were cast in the 2016 election. Uh, Trump had claimed that all of those votes went to Hillary Clinton, by the way. Uh, Kobach assembled a team that was made up not only uh, not of equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans but made up of people who were uh, what uh, the Lawyers Committee called the four horsemen of the voter suppression apocalypse. These were people who were known for making false and exaggerated claims of, of massive voter fraud and trying to promote suppressive laws. The commission is eventually sued for a bunch of reasons, doesn't comply with certain transparency laws, and it gets disbanded before it uh, issues any findings. The social science, when you actually look at it, there really is no good evidence of a voter fraud epidemic in this country. There are pockets of fraud. You see it especially in small local elections involving absentee ballots, but it's really an unusual kind of event.
0: Okay, so let's get to Georgia because you write at length about how all of these elements that erode voter confidence played out in the Georgia gubernatorial race of 2018, which did become a national flashpoint. So let's put that election in context of your framing and these four points that erode trust.
2: So, yeah, right. So we've mentioned um, the voter fraud, voter suppression debate. But the other three points, just to quickly run through them and then apply them to Georgia, uh, election administrator incompetence. Uh, I think you're more likely to be disenfranchised by an incompetent election administrator, whether that's a Democrat or Republican, than by one of uh, these laws. Um, the, the third factor is dirty tricks like the Russian misinformation that we saw in, uh, in, in the 2016 elections. And the last factor is incendiary rhetoric. Uh, talking about stolen or rigged elections. We hear a lot of that from the president, but not only from the president.
0: My guest is Richard Hassan, author of the new book, Election Meltdown. His research and publications on election integrity have been attacked by both the right and the left, which came to the fore, like so many other issues, during the Georgia gubernatorial race of 2018, something most of us here in Georgia remember well, and they are still the subject of federal lawsuits. But Richard, can you briefly walk us through how voter confidence could be eroded by actions taken during that election?
2: So the 2018 gubernatorial election was a good example that brought together a lot of the issues that I discussed in my book. You had Brian Kemp. He was the secretary of state. He's the chief election officer of the state. He's both running the election and running for election because he's running for governor. And he does a number of controversial things involving the exact match law or about, uh, you know, what if you had a hyphen in your name on your driver's license but it's not on your voter registration card if you could vote. Uh, There were issues of voter purges. There are all kinds of questions. But one of the things I focus on is something that happened right before the election – uh, there was a guy named Richard Wright and he was uh, just a, a regular citizen, uh, voter in Georgia. He went to check his registration status on the state registration database website. And what he finds is – he's a software uh, person – and what he finds is if he changes a few keystrokes, he could download everyone's voter information and download every file on the site. So he calls the lawyers who've been involved – there have been a lot of lawsuits over Georgia's uh, voting technology and the insecurity of those systems. He calls some lawyers associated with that. He also calls the Georgia Democratic Party's election protection hotline and tells them about it. Georgia Democrats go to people at Georgia Tech or computer scientists and say, is this something we should worry about? The computer scientists contact the National Security Agency about this hole. And on the Saturday before the Tuesday of Election Day, when lots of Georgia voters are going to the Secretary of State's website, all of a sudden, the top story on that website, if you look under news, and I have a screenshot of this in the book, Election Meltdown, is claims that by the Georgia Secretary of State's office, this official government, this is not the Kemp camp campaign, this is the official site saying that the Georgia Democratic Party is hacking into the database and the FBI is getting involved. Mm-hmm. And so here you had Brian Kemp covering up his uh, ne- negligence with an act of, I think, an attempt to tar his opponents using the official tools of the state, which which I think was, you know, pretty terrible, you know, I call it a, the most banana republic moment in, in the state. And then on the other side, after the election happens, Uh, You have Stacey Abrams who is running against Kemp, refusing to say that Kemp was the legitimate governor of Georgia. And and she kind of dances around it and at some point she says "Yeah, he's the legal governor and at some point she says I actually won my election or the people of Georgia actually won but Kemp is in office. And you had uh, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio calling the election – uh, stolen and Hillary Clinton and you know, a bunch of people. And I think that kind of incendiary rhetoric is really problematic. It's problematic when it comes from Donald Trump when he's saying that you know, the election is rigged or stolen. We saw that after the Iowa debacle. As soon as there were mechanical problems, uh, you had Trump's campaign manager claiming that, uh, that it was rigged against Bernie Sanders. You know, these kind of claims undermine people's confidence in the process. And I really think it's problematic even given the, what I consider to be the very suppressive activities of Brian Kemp. For someone to call an election stolen, Uh, and I think it's a problem for three reasons. Number one, if you don't have the proof, the social science proof that it's actually stolen, that these suppressive efforts made a difference, then you get into a fight over something different, right? You get into a fight over the state of the evidence as opposed to, you know, why does the state get to do this Uh, these kind of laws in the first place. Uh, And so it becomes a battle over the evidence. Second, what you're undermining is the argument against the dignity of every voter. The question should be, why does Georgia get to put stumbling blocks in front of people who want to be able to register and vote without any good reason if it's not supported by voter fraud? And third, Just this kind of loose talk undermines people's confidence in the process. And so while I think it's perfectly fine to say that Brian Kemp engaged in suppressive activities, that Brian Kemp should not have been both running for election and running his own election. He should have recused himself and it was terrible. I would really avoid the stolen election rhetoric. Um, And so this is what got me attacked. Yes, you drew a lot of fire for that. You wrote an
0: article in Slate that said, don't call the Georgia elections stolen. But let's just peel back for a second because the idea that – the Secretary of state doesn 't run polling places they don 't roll out machines or corral volunteers. Part of your argument here is about the decentralization of the elections themselves or the polling places. Can you give us a sense of how that connects to the oversight that you see inside of states
2: sure well so you know it 's kind of a mistake to think of the November election that we 're going to have in two thousand and twenty as a single election it 's actually something like eight or nine thousand elections because not only have we devolved power from the federal government to the states over even national elections, it goes to the county or the sub-county level in some places. You know, you're going to have over something like 150 places in Georgia running elections. Some decisions are made at the local level, uh, you know, whether, uh, whether that's about opening or closing a polling place, that might be a local decision. And now that would not be subject to that preclearance uh, under the old uh, Voting Rights Act regime. And so uh, it's hard to watch if you're uh, worried about voter suppression, about things that happen all across the state
0: you make the case that these are a real vulnerability point not just in small places and small rural places but in places like Detroit or Milwaukee where individual precincts can actually have a determinative effect on the elections
2: sure one of the stories i tell is uh, of the uh, after the 2016 election you may remember Jill Stein who was the green yes. party candidate mm-hmm. she requested recounts in Michigan Pennsylvania and Wisconsin the 3 uh, Rust Belt states that were uh, responsible for Donald Trump's Electoral College victory. And the poll worker error was so severe in Detroit that they couldn't even do a recount because the numbers didn't match. And uh, you know, there were all kinds of allegations of fraud, uh, you know, that the, the ballots didn't match, more, more voters than ballots, you know, all kinds of things were said. And the Republican Secretary of State did an investigation and they found the story that seems to be a story over and over again, which is, it's a computer science principle called Hanlon's razor. Don't attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. And really, it was a tremendous story of incompetence in Detroit. I worry that in uh, the 2020 elections, we could have a cyber attack on the power grid in a city like Detroit. I mean, imagine what it would be if people could not get to the polling places on election day in a large democratic city in a swing state. Uh, you know, there's not much that you or I uh, as average citizens can do to prevent a cyber attack. There's lots of evidence that uh, Russians have uh, been able to penetrate into the um, computer systems that run power systems. But what we do have control over is trying to make states pass a plan B. What happens if there's a natural disaster or a terrorist attack that disrupts the presidential elections? We need to have every state have a plan before – it has to be a plan that's in effect before the election, before we know if that's going to help one candidate win or another. And that's the kind of thing that you think, given all of the kinds of both natural disasters and attacks we've had in this country, that we would have in place.
0: Well, we're going to take a short break and come back to that idea of what would happen in the aftermath of a contested election. Richard Hassan is with me. He's professor of election law at UC Irvine, author of the book Election Meltdown. This is On Second Thought. We'll be right back. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. Richard Hassan is my guest. He's author of Election Meltdown and professor of election law at UC Irvine. His previous book, Voting Wars, detailed the Bush v. Gore election and the Supreme Court decision that followed. He was in Atlanta to talk about his book, and is something that is on the minds of many, not only now, when so much of life as we know it has been disrupted by the coronavirus, but also the overwhelming evidence of Russian meddling and of misinformation campaigns during the election of 2016 and the 2018 midterms, creating chaos and undermining confidence and integrity of our elections. Intelligence sources say these malicious methods are well underway for election 2020. But I want to go back to something that you touched on earlier. What would happen if there were a disaster, if an electric grid was taken down by hacking and voting districts, by malevolent forces, or even by natural disasters?
2: Sure. Well, if it were not a presidential election, I think there could be an argument for a redo. September 11th, uh, 2001, was an election day in New York, and they had to cancel the election and redo it. Uh, Even when we have contested elections, you may remember the Norm Coleman Al Franken U.S. Senate race in Minnesota. That was a very close race. That was, not a, 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 was, that was interrupted, but they had to do a recount, and the whole process took nine months. In a presidential election, we don't have the luxury of time. Right? There's a set timetable for when electoral college votes have to be reported to Congress, um, and so uh, we don't have clear rules for this. Uh, it would end up in the courts. There could be a dispute between federal courts and state courts. You can imagine, you can imagine multiple slates of electors being sent to Congress. Uh, there's just no set path for how to deal with this. And the problem is if you tried to decide these things after the election, everybody knows which candidate might benefit or which candidate would not benefit.
0: Well, that was one of the things that surprised me in the book, that the Obama administration actually had a contingency plan in case Donald Trump or his supporters would not concede the election if he lost. So what would a plan like that involve?
2: Well, so that was a different kind of plan. That was a political plan for, you know, how do you deal with a candidate who doesn't concede? Who do you trot out as the elder statesman to try to calm people and move them on in this era where we're so polarized? Obama was talking about bringing out Colin Powell. I don't know how much Colin Powell would speak to the average Republican voter right now because the Republican Party has shifted so much. It's hard to think of short-term ways of uh, you know, dealing with these kinds of problems. And, and I could spin out um, one more nightmare scenario, which is not in the book, but something that came to mind after the book went to press, which is Pennsylvania, which again could be a swing state, is going to have a brand new system for people to be able to use absentee ballots to vote. So you used to have to have an excuse, now everyone can vote. And the officials in Pennsylvania are already saying it could take days to count all those ballots. So it's very possible that Donald Trump is ahead in Pennsylvania on election night. And we know from some social science evidence that these absentee ballots that have come in, they've tended to be Shift towards Democrats. Mm -hmm. We had this happen in California, Florida, California. Yeah, so uh, um, you can imagine Donald Trump declares victory uh, if if Pennsylvania is decisive for the electoral college. Declares victory on election night because he's ahead, and then eventually his lead evaporates and his Democratic opponent declares victory. And state election officials say that the Democratic opponent of Trump has won the state, but Trump says, no, it's me, and Trump convinces the Republican legislature to send a separate slate of electors to Congress. Congress would then have two slates of electors, and there are some complicated and somewhat contradictory rules in the electoral college over how you're supposed to do that, one of them being that the uh, House of Representatives chooses the president, but not on a one-member, one-vote basis, one-state, one-vote basis more Republican states than Democratic states. So you can imagine Donald Trump loses Pennsylvania but wins the presidency thanks to a partisan vote in the House of Representatives. So, I mean, there's just lots of things that could go wrong. And the reason this book is out now, uh, you know, months before the election rather than right at election time, I don't mean to sound the alarm for no reason. I mean to sound the alarm so that we will get things in place, uh, as many things as possible in order to minimize the chances of a problem in November.
0: There is a very real fear that has emerged, and some of it inflamed by rhetoric that you identify as the corrosive factor in your book. It's so plentiful on the Internet, and there's a fear that it could spill out onto the streets if one candidate or another were not elected, something Donald Trump himself joked about in 2016.
2: I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election. If I win.
0: Critics at the time said statements like that stoke fear of this violence. Does it feel like a legitimate threat?
2: Yes. Well, I've been going around the country talking about these issues in connection with uh, the election meltdown book. And I would say invariably somebody brings up this question about uh, armed supporters in the streets. And the fact that we're having this discussion now just shows – you how far this country has come in the last decade uh, or how far we've fallen, that there is a legitimate concern about potential violence if the election is close and uh, it is decided in a way that makes people believe that the election is unfair. This is one of the reasons why I think it's very important uh, for the election to be done as fairly as possible so that the most people possible won't be convinced by misinformation uh, that's out there. We don't have a good playbook for this. You know, I was... Looking back over a blog post that I wrote on my election law blog uh, in January 2009 when Barack Obama was inaugurated and I was reflecting on how amazing it was that you had George W. Bush, this conservative Republican, willingly handing over power to Barack Obama, liberal Democrat, uh, all this pomp and circumstance, everybody's celebrating it and Republicans thought, all right, we're going to try harder next time. And, you know, uh, John McCain, remember, called Barack Obama an honorable man, just said he didn't agree with his ideas. Uh, And then you had Mitt Romney, who also ran, I think, a very honorable campaign, lost that campaign. And now this turn, as the parties have realigned, there's so much heat right now that anything that can be done to try to bring reason and calm and clear rules is useful because I do worry that – Uh, If enough people are convinced that there's a problem, that it could potentially lead to violence, which is – it's just astonishing that we're having this conversation right now in 2020.
0: I want to get to this idea of dirty tricks, of undermining the integrity and the appearance of legitimacy of elections. Now, we've been talking about a lot of Republicans uh, questioning the legitimacy of elections or calling voter fraud – but there's Democratic operatives in trying to sway the 2017 Alabama U.S. Senate special election that you write about in the book. Pretty much, it sounds like, taking pages from the playbook of Russian disinformation. Tell us about that case and, and what, what do you think is the danger in 2020?
2: Sure. So that was a special Senate race. This was... Um, Roy Moore versus Doug Jones. Right. And Roy Moore was an unusually controversial Republican nominee Alabama is a solidly red state. Ordinarily, you'd expect that a Republican would just waltz in uh, to office. But Roy Moore, uh, there were allegations that he had an inappropriate sexual relationship with um, – it was a teenager when he was in his 30s and, uh, and, and he was the Ten Commandments judge. There were all kinds of controversy around him. And so some supporters of Doug Jones, who was the Democrat running for office, unbeknownst to Jones – Jones had nothing to do with this – but uh, a group got $500,000 in funding from an outside uh, source – named Reed Hoffman, who is uh, one of the founders of LinkedIn, and they used it to do Russian-style misinformation. And according to some leaked documents, and I print uh, uh, some of them in Election Meltdown, uh, the idea was to suppress the votes of fifty thousand moderate Republicans, convince them not to, to show up and vote by making Roy Moore seem too extreme. It was already pretty extreme, but they tried to make it more extreme by, for example, running a page called Dry Alabama on Facebook, which was supposedly a group of fundamentalist Baptists who wanted to ban alcohol sales in the state of Alabama and were aligning themselves with Roy Moore. And the idea was that this would be repulsive to mainstream pro-business Republican uh, people and they would not turn out to vote. We don't know how successful these efforts were. They tried to suppress 50,000 votes. We know that it was about a 50,000-vote margin in favor of Doug Jones. But we can't just conclude that the misinformation actually had this suppressive effect. But it does raise the question, should Democrats fight fire with fire? What we know from social science about misinformation is that it's not necessarily that people are going to believe the, you know, Pizzagate stories or these crazy conspiracy theories. It's that it undermines people's confidence in all information that they see. I mean, part of the problem is local news media has been decimated by the rise of social media and the internet. In some ways, I think looking to 2020, we're fighting the last war. You know, we're worried about if the same things that happened in 2016 are going to happen in 2020. I think different things are going to happen. We'll see some of that. Uh, one possibility, if Joe Biden is the nominee, is that there's going to be documents uh, leaked from Burisma. You know, we already know that uh, the Russians were trying to break into the servers there in the Ukraine and get information, and so. Uh, We can't think about what happened in 2016 as like the limits of what can be. I think it's – we're going to have to look for new things that might happen in 2020.
0: We're talking about threats to election integrity either in reality or in perception with my guest Richard Hassan. He's professor at the University of California, Irvine and author of the new book Election Meltdown. One of the key takeaways for me is that the onus has shifted to the individual voter on some level. That, you know, there has to be vigilance about making sure that you are properly registered. Uh, fact-checking articles passed around on Facebook. Waiting in lines that could be hours in some cases in order to cast your vote and then know how to use the machines. Is that accurate, that the work has shifted not from the state or the local election boards to make the elections easier and more legitimate, but it's actually the work is, has to be done by the individual voter? And what does that mean in the in the scale of democracy?
2: Well, I don't know that I call it a shift. I would say that the burden has increased on everyone. So while the burden has increased on voters, you know, people should be advocating to make sure that they're um, voting uh, processes in their local jurisdictions are transparent, that the machines are capable of being audited, that uh, people are not being disenfranchised who, ha- who have a legitimate right to vote. But there's also a burden on election administrators. So if you're an election administrator in a small county, you're going to have to work with state and federal officials to make sure that uh, your system is not hacked because they're always looking for vulnerabilities, you know, and a, and a small overworked county might be the place to get into the state system. Uh, The burden falls on the news media I have to accurately explain to people that just because an election result is – takes a long time to produce doesn't mean that there's fraud going on. It might just be the election officials are taking their time to make sure they get it right. And as we saw with the Iowa debacle, those who run elections – in that case, it was the Iowa Democratic Party and Mm not uh, election officials – if you're going to roll out new rules and new machines, you know, just like you wouldn't premiere your play straight to Broadway, you might have some off-Broadway practices, some, testing. Uh, some rehearsals. Yeah, they need to do more testing. And uh, that is something that if you're – especially if you're going to change the rules on, in such a high-stakes environment – and you're using technology. We all know how technology has bugs. And so, so the burdens is on all of us. And we can't just say it's just on voters, but it certainly is on voters. I agree with you about that.
0: You're asking for the complete rejection by the media, the election professionals, public intellectuals to reject voter fraud as a major problem in the U.S., to stop propagating that story, and also to pull back on this rhetoric. There are so many more news sources than there were Ten years ago or even during the last election, there are so many more concerted campaigns to get people's attention, to inflame them and to pass on social media posts and stories that may not be true. Is this a losing battle?
2: Well, you know, a lot of this depends on what the public demands. So uh, there's been a lot of pressure on Facebook to try to deal with. The, and Facebook the has
0: said, hands off, we are not going to fact check.
2: Well, well but Facebook now says we're going to uh, link to fact checkers. And so then who are going to be the fact checkers? And we're going to link to reputable news sources. So a few months ago, Facebook had a page of reputable news sources and included within it was Breitbart, which I consider to be not a reputable news source because they've spread uh, false conspiracy theories in the past. So um, I don't know that I call it a losing battle, but I think that it's going to require constant vigilance and really – Uh, nobody can be trusted to do this alone and we all have to be watching to make sure that everyone is doing their part. Uh, and, And the goal here is to make sure that voters can get accurate information and so that voters can participate in a system where all eligible voters, but only eligible voters, can cast a ballot that will be fairly and accurately counted. I mean, that shouldn't be too much to ask for for the world's greatest democracy.
0: Okay, your election day toolkit, what do you take with you?
2: Well, election day should be a quiet day for me. Um, if it's not a quiet day, it's a problem. I'm hoping that the election is not close. So I should tell you the election administrator's prayer is, Lord, let this election not be close. Because if it's not close, then we don't have to look at all the intricacies. If it is close, you know, and if it's close in a state that matters for Electoral College, then it's going to be, I think, a really protracted battle. And those of your listeners who are old enough to remember Bush versus Gore – Imagine Bush versus Gore with a more polarized electorate and with social media Mm. and with outside uh, agitators who would try to egg on people, uh, you know, to claim that the election is stolen or rigged. And so we really need to be at our best uh, and ready to go on Election Day.
0: What is your recommendation for the average voter to educate themselves and get themselves ready for Election Day?
2: Well, so first you want to make choices that are informed choices and you want to make sure you're relying on reputable sources of information. We live in information silos. We tend to see things on social media that already back what we believe. And so, you know, it would be good to hear both sides. Uh, make sure you're registered to vote and make sure that uh, your registration is up to date and you're voting in the, r- in the right place. And if you have the opportunity to vote early, uh, I'm a big believer in early voting because it gives a chance for both the voter and elected officials to deal with any potential complications. Some people end up having to wait in line to vote early. But if you do it on a weekend or an evening when you're not working, it's a little bit less pressure than if you have to go on election day. And that will take some of the pressure off on election day. But the, the biggest advice is just like fine wine takes time to ferment, you know, election results take time. So I would say on election night, have a glass of wine. Maybe listen to some music. Don't turn on cable news and wait a few hours because it's going to take a while. And if it's close, it might take days before we have results. And that does not mean that we have a failed election. That just means that we want to make sure that it's done right.
0: Richard Hassan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Richard Hassan, professor of election law at UC Irvine and author of Election Meltdown. He's also co-host of an excellent five-part podcast series of the same name on Slate's Amicus series with Dahlia Lithwick. We're going to put a link to that up at gbbnews.org. Savannah is home to the second largest St. Patrick's Day parade in the country, which has rolled through the streets for 196 years, ceasing only during the Civil War, World War I, and 2020. The city said it is postponing its annual parade to prevent potential spread of coronavirus. But wherever you are in Georgia, we recommend checking in to see if your local pub or restaurants are open for a pint of Gat or a glass of Minerals. So far, there haven't been any reports of runs on Guinness or on corned beef. So you can still pick up some and enjoy at home with some Irish music, like this one, The Chieftains Boil the Breakfast Early. Wherever and however you're gathering, let us know. Join us on our Facebook group, GBB Radios on Second Thought. You can also reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. A number of listeners have written or called or posted to say that they miss our daily show. Well, there are still plenty of archives you can mine at our website, gpbnews.org. Or you can subscribe to our podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and listen on your own time. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott from a long line of Murphys, Healy's, Nortons, and whatnots, wishing you a happy St. Patrick's Day weekend and holiday. And be safe out there. Thank you for spending some time with On Second Thought.